Welcome to the Reimagine Medicine podcast. We look forward to delving into the topics that are shaping clinical care, medical research, medical education, and challenging us to reimagine medicine. Each month, we bring together clinicians, researchers, educators, healthcare thought leaders, and medical students to share the experiences and ideas that are fueling their efforts. In this episode, we will discuss rural health, delivering care in rural and Native American communities. I'm Dr. Johnny Lifshitz. I'm Dr. Katie Bright. We are faculty members at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Thank you for joining us. Rural communities in Arizona and all across the U.S. continue to experience a chronic shortage of physicians and healthcare professionals, as well as limited access to medical facilities, economic factors, cultural and social differences, limited facilities, and geographic isolation are among many obstacles that contribute to healthcare disparities and impede efforts to lead healthy lives. We will be talking with physicians who are working with communities to improve rural health. It's great to have you with us. The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the hosts and their guests and do not represent the opinions of the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, or Banner Health. Do not use this podcast for medical advice. Instead, consult your personal family physician for medical care. Joining us today is Dr. William Kantz. Dr. Kantz leads the University of Arizona Cancer Center in Phoenix and is a renowned oncology surgeon and physician scientist. He also serves as interim director of the UA Cancer Center in Tucson. Dr. Kantz has made enormous strides across the state of Arizona to establish a culture of collaboration to advance cancer care and treatment. Welcome. For many patients living in rural communities and on Native American reservations in Arizona, their experiences with medical providers have not been positive. Can you tell us about the outreach that you've done to build these collaborations so that we can advance cancer care and treatment here in Arizona? The University of Arizona and the University of Arizona Cancer Center have a long history of outreach uh, to the Native American communities. We'll focus on that, that those communities. Um, we've had a, a grant, the Native American uh, Cancer Par- uh, Prevention Program, which is a large uh, uh, U54 huge grant to, to look at um, various ways of addressing the disparities, uh, training Native Americans, uh, graduating undergrads, PhDs, and so forth, and actually doing research projects on the fundamental areas of cancer risk that are on the the reservations. Um, We've had outreach uh, across many of the tribes, uh, particularly for colorectal cancer screening. There's a lot of need for colorectal screening there. Um, There's a lot of complex cancers seen on the reservation. Um, most recently, we have been collaborating with Tuba City Regional Hospital uh, with the, the two physicians who are opening an infusion center for cancer chemotherapy. The, the Navajo have to drive over 200 miles to get chemotherapy, uh, which is like driving from Washington to New York. I uh, don't think anybody else in the country does that. So it sounds like the primary way in which you're building the trust is to engage with them at all levels, not just physician or provider to patient, but actually create the new Native American physicians and healthcare teams in the local environment. Right. We, we really, we, I think that has to be one of our goals. I think that the key thing is, um, is building the trust. As I've learned, uh, uh, about Arizona, and I've been here about three years, and uh, 
Um, my experience with Native Americans, I grew up in the mountains of North Carolina with the Cherokee, but uh, not in a state where what, 27% is tribal land and what, 22 federally recognized tribes. So I think we have to build that trust first, and I think we need to ask them what their needs are as opposed to saying, we're here to help, this is what we're going to do. No, I definitely hear that pain and that frustration as well as the obligation in your voice is to go and listen to those uh, individuals who need care or ask for care and give it to them in the appropriate way that they would want that care to be received. Given that lack of trust as well as the distances that you mentioned, it seems like there's a chance that many of the diseases that could be prevented or treated uh, may go undiagnosed for long periods of time. So is it true that many of the cancers that you might see on these native populations are more advanced and through prevented, preventive treatment may be able to be caught earlier? Yes, we do see a lot of advanced cancer. Um, there's uh, there are hereditary cancers that we that, that are on the reservation, such as uh, Lynch syndrome. There have been kindreds published there. Um, that gets into the issue of genetic screening and the, the, the trust issues associated with that. We're, we're seeing it, a, a lot of stomach cancer in the Native Americans, and that's largely related to Helicobacter pylori. And th- when you think about that, that is treatable, uh, it's, pre- it's uh, preventable, but it's getting the outreach, the education to these, these rural uh, areas. And, and one of the things that we're trying to do is to figure how we can not only get health education, which would be done by, by for example, Navajo, obviously the Navajo Nation, and, but how can we engage with the communities more effectively, like through grocery stores, for example? Can we get information out? How can we focus on diet? I mean, did you know that, that 70% of the unelectrified homes in America, 70, 70% are on the Navajo Nation? So there you have no refrigeration, you're eating a diet from you know, canned food, box food, lack of fresh vegetables. How can we impact that? How can we work to try to get a healthier diet so you, you have a perfect storm there of the diet issues? You have, I think, 523 abandoned uranium mines, and then you have other genetic factors that are probably still undetermined. Yeah, so it really seems like Uh, someone like the University of Arizona or the entire state of Arizona can help out, that it's not necessarily a medical issue that we want to attack, but a um, providing the right resources, the right environment to be able to make sure that uh, Americans have what Americans need, which is um, all those basic human needs that are in front of us. And it's great to hear your perspective on that in that regard. So I think that's another thing. We have to integrate culturally with them. I, we, we're trying to learn more about tribal healing. They've been doing this for thousands of years. I'm anxious to know what you know how we can engage more and take some of their practices into Western medicine. But we can't just force Western medicine down you know in, in, in a culture that's used to tribal healers. Yeah. No, I love that con- concept of a two-way relationship, meaning... Uh, learning from each other so that we can figure out the best way to move forward. 
To switch topics for just a minute, uh, there is a substantial amount of evidence that higher levels of physical activity are linked to lower risks of developing several cancers. Can we focus on women's health for a moment? Can you explain the link between exercise levels in young women and their risks for developing cancer? Yes, so it's been been shown that women, young girls actually who exercise during puberty have a lifelong reduction in breast cancer risk, between 20 and 30%. So it, it basically starts there. And we know breast cancer survivors live longer when they exercise. So there's a, there's a survival advantage in the women who exercise after breast cancer. So we're, we're learning more and more about that. But the, the exercise, uh, I think, is one of those underappreciated and easily, uh, hopefully easily treated uh, uh, risk factors. Um, how does the Cancer Center attack this? This is sort of an open question to allow us to hear your vision as the, as the leader of the Cancer Center um, on how the Cancer Center is going to attack all these different aspects of cancer for Arizonans and beyond our borders. Right. Well, I'm, I'm glad you, you mentioned Arizonans because one of the key things it, be, to be a, a National Cancer Institute designated center, comprehensive cancer center, is to serve your catchment area. So we're the only NCI-designated comprehensive cancer center based in Arizona whose sole mission is to the people of Arizona. So we, we are obligated to serve the whole state, and we have programs uh, led by our community outreach and engagement who really analyzes the needs and the, the focus and actually drives the research questions within the cancer center. There's a lot of rural health issues. If you look at Mojave County, the highest death rate from cancer in, in Arizona. Um, so we have that as a basis that, that looks at, at defining what diseases are important in the catchment area. So you pick up diseases like liver cancer, for example. Um, that's a risk factor if you, if you fold in obesity. Um, in Hispanic uh, patients, for example, big risk for the, what we call non-alcoholic steatohepatitis or NASH, which is a precursor for, for liver cancer. So we have that defining the programs. Then we have four basic programs, cancer biology, therapeutic development, cancer imaging, and cancer prevention and control that, that is the research engine. And then we have our clinical trials uh, uh, that, that we, um, we try to drive as many investigator-initiated clinical trials as possible because that's specific for your catchment area. That's what helps Arizonans, you know, more than anything because it takes these the best treatment and asks deeper questions either clinically or scientifically or both. But uh, that's how we, we try to, to drive the programs and create the broader vision across, across Arizona. I really appreciate the way that you've described the fact that we are a comprehensive cancer center as the designation exists, and we'll be sure to post that online. Thank you so much for joining us, Thank Dr. Kanz. We would like to welcome Dr. Damon Dixon to the discussion. Dr. Dixon is a pediatric cardiologist practicing in the greater Phoenix area. He's affiliated with Phoenix Children's Hospital and Mayo Clinic Hospital. Dr. Dixon is also an advocate for the development and implementation of community-based programs which address healthcare disparities. Dr. Dixon, I remember when I met you, it was in a small rural town in Minnesota. What town was that? 
gosh, I don't remember. I just remember that it was um, west of uh, Minnesota. I mean, the Twin Cities, which was a good two-hour drive, and it was snowing, and it was cold, but I remember I was giving a presentation for a rural health community that day. Yes, on, I think it was familial hyperlipidemia, and all of the students were super engaged. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little more about this experience and also your experience with health disparities in rural communities? Previously, before I was went to fellowship in pediatric cardiology, I was a general pediatrician at um, through the Indian Health Service, and um, I served as a general pediatrician for four to five years prior to going to fellowship, and um, I definitely learned some of the challenges and the obstacles being a general physician in the Indian Health Service, which is another sub-arm, I would say, of rural health. Previously, um, having access to subspecialty care was a limited resource for some of the Indian Health Services and some of the rural um, communities, so having a new role as a, as a pediatric cardiologist, I've kind of understanding the bridging between how a, how a subspecialist in um, cardiology could help a general pediatrician or a primary care person in, um, in, in the rural setting. So it sounds like many of our other guests, similarly, you saw something and it needed to change, so you picked up whatever tools you had and started to change that. In building those programs, you need to put together community partnerships, and those community partnerships are likely critical to getting it started, getting it going, and maintaining it. So can you tell us more about those challenges that keep driving your career? I, definitely, I think that's the key word that you said, is, uh, is trying to develop those, those partnerships with your, your, your primary care provider and your subspecialist provider. And I think it works on both ends, really, from a primary care physician going out and networking and trying to meet those subspecialists and those larger hospitals to develop those partnerships that they can either bridge with telemedicine or some special relationship that, that a primary care provider can um, <clears throat> access questions or concerns to a subspecialist. Um, and then from the, from, a, from the other spectrum, from being a subspecialist um, medical provider, is really using your resources and your expertise to help those um, primary um, providers to um, access care to the hospitals that you serve and um, help to raise the, the status for um, medical care in the rural setting. We know that heart disease, cancer, diabetes, infectious disease, all of these things are very prevalent in rural and remote communities. And for each of these, we also know that early detection and treatment is really important in determining outcomes. But we have this geographic isolation. So do you think we're making progress in providing education and access to care? Yeah, I think so. I think there's been a different shift in terms of prevention strategy. I think previously um, in medicine, we were really focused on primary, secondary, and tertiary prevention care. But a new form that we're starting to realize a little bit is what we call primordial prevention, which is actually um, trying to decrease it and don't let the person actually um, develop the risk factors. Um, And I think now that um, we have a better understanding of prevention and, and preventative care, I think that's now starting to become implemented in the medical school and the education that we need to identify um, patients or that are at risk for um, for long-term chronic medical problems and 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 use strategies so that um, the risk factors are not even developed yet. So pre-primary prevention, that's great, being, being ahead of the curve. Do you think that technology has been helpful in this as far as like our informatics and pop health tools as well as telemedicine? Yes, uh, definitely it has be, become uh, um, 
a great new tool. Um, now that we have point of care, we've previously had point of care testing with just simple labs. Now we have actually point of care with imaging, which um, is an exciting tool for, for rural primary care providers to have. Um, the question is, is how comfortable and what are the legal problems that may come with um, using some of those new tools that someone as a rural physician may not necessarily be an expertise at. I was hoping you'd kind of go into that a little bit with how important it is to be able to expose our medical students to those um, underserved and rural communities and hopefully immerse them in those communities so they are attracted to wanting to practice there after they graduate. Um, and, and, you know, I know you're super innovative, so I'm going to ask you to maybe go back a little further, almost like primordial uh, recruiting. So mm-hmm. what are some ideas for how we can get maybe some of the students that are already interested in, in rural health, a pipeline, if you will, to... Uh, admit them in the first place so that hopefully they'll go back to those um, geographic locations where we need them most. So I can only reflect on, you know, my experiences that made me want to go into, um, to be an advocate for rural health. Um, I think it's definitely um, trying to find those communities, those medical institutions, and um, preceptors who are very excited about having students and um, the willingness to take students for a unique experience. Um, I did majority of my rotations up in the border, on, the, on the, um, the state line of North Dakota and Minnesota, almost on the Canadian border there. And what I did find is that those, those rotations were specifically supposed to be their family medicine, pediatrics, so OBGYN. But what I found was when you go to those rural rotations, um, they're often a lot more um, exciting than you would thought because when you're with those primary providers, you're not only the family medicine doctor, you're the surgeon, you're the veterinarian, you're you're the um, the lab technician. And I think it's that sort of excitement that you see because when you're a, a student, um, being exposed to that, you think it's one of the greatest things because you're getting so much more than your other colleagues are getting when it's just one primary silo of a, of a medical rotation. Obviously that you have this passion for rural medicine and you want to instill it and, and expose all of our students to it. It's been a pleasure to have you. Uh, at this time, we have to take a break and we're going to continue with our other guests. Great. Thank you, Dr. Dixon, for joining us. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks. Dr. Johnny Lifshitz serves as the director of the Translational Neurotrauma Research Program, which is a joint venture through Barrow Neurological Institute at Phoenix Children's Hospital, the Department of Child Health at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, and the Phoenix Veterans Affairs Healthcare System. Dr. Katie Bright is the chair of the Curriculum Committee and co-director of the Family, Community, and Preventative Medicine Clerkship at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix, placing students with community clinical partners all across the state. She is a family physician and the vice president of primary care services at Bayless Integrated Healthcare. Welcome back to the Reimagined Medicine podcast. We are very pleased to have Dr. Jonathan Cartsonis with us. Dr. Cartsonis is a family physician as well as director of the Rural Health Professions Program and co-director of the Pathways Clinical Practicum course here at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. He also serves as the medical director for the Collaborative Ventures Network and staff physician with Maricopa County Correctional Health. Thanks for being with us, Dr. Cartsonis. My pleasure. So in the mid-90s, the Arizona legislature acknowledged the shortage of rural health physicians in Arizona and they had a statute requiring medical students to complete a rural educational experience. The U of A College of Medicine Phoenix is committed to inspiring medical students to pursue all areas of shortage, including rural health, 
primary care. I was hoping maybe you could elaborate on this uh, legislative uh, mandate and then also tell us a little bit about the programs that you're participating in. You know, there are huge shortages of especially primary care physicians in rural communities. Um, you know, I, I see this all the time when I'm traveling to many of these communities. Um, uh, anxiety, the existing, the physicians who are in practice, they're saying, what am I, how am I going to retire? What am I going to do? Well, this, uh, and, and there's no cohort to replace um, those physicians. Well, this, this same anxiety has been going on for decades now. And uh, even, even with uh, some of the great innovations that, that took place in the 1990s, we, we have to do more. What we want to do, though, here at the U of A and what we're really working to do is expand, go beyond what the legislation says and do what is evidence-based and what will really make a difference in terms of recruiting the next generation of doctors to rural settings. So um, one of our initiatives has been the Rural Certificate of Distinction, and that is an optional rural track for students. They they attend seminars. We invite speakers, authorities, and in in, various aspects of rural health to come and talk about those issues. Um, And they attend seminars in their first two years uh, uh, with those speakers. Um, We place them early on in in medical school for a one-month experience in a rural community that they will return to in their third year for a longitudinal experience. That means several months in the same setting uh, where they can build professional connections where they can reunite with family if they come from that community, um, where they can envision themselves ultimately practicing in that setting. And so um, that's, that's one initiative that's been rolled out over the years and I think is functioning really well. And you and I have collaborated on that effort quite a bit. So what I'm learning about rural medicine is that it's really the immersive exposure that allows the students to um, immer- to see themselves, to use your words, in that community and practicing in that way. There must be some students here and, and in your training history who said, I would never do rural medicine until they did a rural medicine rotation. And then you probably have other students who said, I'm going to be a rural doc no matter what, who ended up being a rural doc. Any quick anecdotes about successes or changes of heart? One student in particular who was in a rural community, the nearest big city, rural community of maybe uh, 10,000, nearest big city, three hours away, very different from New York City, where she was a, a film producer, documentary film produ- producer, um, had a very different kind of life. And immediately when she got there, we we started to receive uh, emails about um, how comfortable she felt there and how she really had no idea what the lifestyle would be like in in this community that happens to have, you know, arts and and uh, colorful characters and uh, actually very, very high standard medical education as well. So um, in the end, she ended up um, completing several months in this community. She um, conducted a scholarly project related to childhood nutrition in rural communities that got published in a national journal. 
and uh, walked away from the experience just very effusive about about how how great the experience was. So without a doubt, something that you have to experience. You can't just sit in a library and read about it. It's something that's immersive. Yeah, I was hoping to elaborate on that a little bit as well um, with maybe talking a little bit about the longitudinal integrated clerkship that is in the works and and hopefully will be rolled out and especially focusing on what it means for the students as well as the health of the communities and how the communities might benefit from this. So um, I feel like we're taking we're taking this rural training experience and opportunity to another level and we're actively working on it now. It's a an area of great interest across the country at medical schools. It's this concept of the longitudinal integrated clerkship. And essentially what it means is that in the third year, that's the clinical year of medical education, students will be placed in the rural communities, but will immediately begin to shoulder the responsibilities of a physician, <laughs> well, of course, with appropriate supervision, <laughs> don't worry, uh, with appropriate uh, physician supervision, but taking on uh, 30 patients of their own assigned to that individual student uh, to solve the problems, to make the diagnoses, to uh, to collaborate with the patients on finding appropriate answers, um, anyway, that that's part of this longitudinal integrated clerkship. And so uh, experience kind of the full circle of um, illness, intervention, recovery, and um, crossing also several specialty, potentially several specialties of medicine in that in that uh, whole experience. In this longitudinal integrated clerkship, the student, is having all of those experiences simultaneously as they naturally um, develop and 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 occur in their patient population, and they can follow their patients in a more natural way, the way that medicine is actually practiced. And what we've learned is that that's a superior way to learn. The students really are involved in the care. The patients appreciate having an advocate who's mm-hmm. who's there for you know, for them at every stage of the game, a recognizable face, somebody who can translate for them from medicalese to English or Spanish for that matter or any another language. The students get to know their instructors really well. The instructors know the students. The instructors know the weaknesses and the strengths of the student. And this is creating a future physician, hopefully for that community, coming who will return and be fantastically prepared to take care of uh, the people in that region. So it's a great opportunity for these students to really be junior doctors, and it sounds like there must be thousands of rural sites that are chomping at the bit to receive (laughs) these students, and and so quickly is it is it the number of sites that are available for these rotations or encouraging the students to take that first step? Which one do you find the more, which one's the bigger challenge for you? Um, I think we have a lot more capacity for interested students. And my hope is that as we build pipeline uh, from rural communities into medical uh, into medical school, that we see greater numbers taking advantage. You know, after the maybe first quarter of third year and students have returned, 
back and that B dance is happening, uh, we get a lot of requests to change schedules mm-hmm. and and for um, students to switch to rural sites. It's really fun to uh, accommodate that. How many of these are in the state of Arizona? How many rural sites are outside mm-hmm. the state of Arizona? Are we mandated, as Katie introduced us to the legislation, to make those rural sites in Arizona? That's a great question. So um, we... For the vast majority of the sites that we support, they are located in Arizona. And, you know, being a state institution, I think that's really our mandate. The way I view it, we are really a region um, of the Southwest, and we share the same needs. We share the same deficits in, in, in primary care. So we do send students to, for example, uh, parts of uh, Southwest uh, New Mexico, Silver City, Deming, um, and uh, at times Lordsburg, and the students are getting fantastic experiences there as well. So, uh, but I would say the majority of the experiences um, are available in, for instance, on Navajo Nation, uh, the Gila River community, uh, Prescott, Page, um, Kingman, uh, Lake Havasu. Um, let me let me think. It's on Yuma, San Luis. Uh, we uh, Marenzi, um, and I like to I like to divide up the experiences, especially on Navajo Nation and Fort Defiance. So there's really a huge diversity of opportunities um, in Arizona for the students to take advantage and learn. I was hoping because we were always talking about how to get more physicians to the rural sites and recruitment, and I was hoping you could relay a little bit of you know what's in it for the physicians and some of our rural colleagues love it so can you highlight that a little bit some of the benefits of being a rural physician I, w- some of the benefits of being a rural, rural physician include uh, really being a, a a keystone of the community like being that individual that the community depends on in order for you know health, but also economic health. When, when uh, there are physicians present, um, there are people from all generations who feel like they can comfortably stay in a community and uh, receive the health care that they really require. Um, and I think a lot of the physicians who are, work in rural communities have that sort of mission-driven um, idea about rural health and how they are a critical component there. And they lead very satisfied lives as a result. It's not uh, just about the paycheck or, you know, uh, the money that they make. It's really about the mission and the role that they serve within that community. And that leads to a satisfied life in the end. Uh, That's what I see. Yeah, it sounds like this longitudinal integrated clerkship is going to go a long way to changing the core and the essence of our students so that they'd want to be physicians. But in the immediate need, some of these rural sites might need to be creative in ways in which they want to recruit either residents or fellows or even long-term physicians. Um, what, what is being done to encourage that type of uh, physician <laughs> increase in those areas? I'm glad you asked that question. We have, um, we've been involved at College of Medicine Phoenix in the development of and supporting of rural residency programs. And um, one that we have a more established relationship with is in Yuma and associated with uh, Yuma Regional Medical Center. Um, But 
And then another one in Flagstaff is under development and will be accepting residents for family medicine in next uh, July. They'll have their first class. Data shows that students, well, where, where residents finish their residency is where they're most likely to practice. So traditionally, training programs have been placed in big urban centers at giant hospitals, and it's been hospital-based uh, education. Well, now there's there are new funding opportunities to create rural residencies that are based out of community health centers. There are vulnerable communities surrounding places like Flagstaff or a lot of our rural regions. For example, huge huge need for primary care physicians on Navajo Nation. And there are um, a number of students here at College of Medicine who grew up on Navajo Nation and um, have every intention to go back and practice. And the best way to support, in my view, um, that to happen is uh, to have residency programs near home. And thanks for drawing that correlation and why it's so important to have residencies outside of just being urban settings. I think the cherry on top, what we've observed is definitely, the other thing is besides practicing where they want to live and work and, and the communities in which they want to live and love is loan repayment options as well. Mm. So sometimes the cherry on top is that there's, because of the shortage, there might be an opportunity to get loan repayment. Now that is another really good point, and I know that you, Dr. Bright, were a you were you not a National Health Service course? I colleague? was, yes. No, and I know that you've been a great resource to students who've been interested in that avenue. Um, so the federal government designates um, parts of the state, and for that matter, the country is high need areas, and they give a scoring system, and um, students or sorry, graduates who go to practice in high-need areas are eligible for loan repayment from the federal government and also from the state government. And so having these uh, loan, loan repayment programs is a huge benefit and makes it possible for, for uh, practicing physicians to go back to rural communities. Yeah, the, the conversation makes me jealous because in the research setting, and most of us happens in urban environments, which is where, where I personally live, but it does sound like an exciting, uh, I would consider it a sabbatical from research to be able to go and immerse yourself in the communities mm -hmm. that you're serving. So thank you so much for sharing uh, all your thoughts and your enthusiasm for these programs with us. Um, it's been a pleasure having you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. Thank you so much. It is a great pleasure to welcome Catherine Blevins, who goes by Katie. Katie is an MD candidate at the UA College of Medicine Phoenix class of 2023. Katie, it's so great to have you here with us. Can you just start off by sharing a little bit about your journey to become a physician? Let the audience know who you are, how you got here to be part of the, the next class of physicians at the U of A College of Medicine Phoenix. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you guys so much for having me. Um, so I am from a rural part of Arizona, uh, Prescott, Arizona. It's about two hours north of Phoenix. Um, and I am the first person in my household to go to college and first person to graduate and attempt to become a doctor. So it's all pretty new. Um, I have kind of always been interested in the field. I really like science. To me, it makes a lot of sense how things work. Um, when I was 13, my mom got breast cancer, 
and come in a rural area, there weren't a lot of health options, so we had to travel to Phoenix and sometimes even even further away to, you know, see doctors and get treatment and everything. Um, so that was very motivating because I suddenly was spending a lot of time around physicians and in practices and everything, so I got to see sort of how the job actually shapes lives and influences outcomes for people. Um, unfortunately, she did pass when I was 16, and so that was also very motivating to sort of fully commit to the field, so I did. And then I felt a little bit lost afterwards. I felt like I'd kind of jumped into this idea of what I wanted to be, but hadn't had any guidance of how to get there, because I was the first person to go to college in my entire like extended family even. So um, I spent some time looking for a job that would get me more involved in the medical field, so I started to scribe at this company that sent me out to the San Carlos Apache Reservation. Um, but when I was out there, I got to work firsthand um, in the emergency room, 12-hour shifts, seven days a week with people who are really, really underserved and from a very, very rural part of the, of the country. So that was life-changing and, and altering to see sort of the barriers that they face. Um, so I heard about the Pathway Scholars Program here at the U of A, which is now an amazing master's bridge program to help people from underserved areas, rural areas, and who are underrepresented in medicine uh, get into medical school. So I applied to that um, two days before the application was due because I didn't know about it. And <laughs> once again, lucky shot, I got uh, an interview, and I feel like it obviously went well. So I just finished that last year, um, and that was an amazing opportunity as well because they, they spend so much time talking about diversity and understanding social determinants of health and everything, which I feel sometimes you might know what they are but haven't been able to sort of have the language to describe them. So that was wonderful. And then thankfully the U of A decided to accept me as an official MD candidate, and here I am today. So that's a little bit about me. Well, Katie, thank you so much for sharing that very personal and touching story. Uh, how do you think overcoming um, such such odds, but also being from a rural community has shaped you, and, and how do you think it influences the type of physician you hope to be? First of all, just coming from a rural area, I feel like that kind of experience can give you the firsthand knowledge of what it's like that can't really be replicated any other way. I mean, you can you can see how other people live, but it's not the same as going through it yourself. So I just feel like I, I had a good appreciation for the actual difficulties, because I think it's easy to think or like imagine how it might be difficult to get to a hospital if it's 50 or 60 or 70 miles away, but it's different to know that it's not just that. It's also that, you know, when someone's in, in cancer treatment, they're exhausted all the time and they don't have a great immune system. So there's all these other factors into transportation and money is a huge factor as well. It's not just getting there, but the cost of the gas to get there and sort of all these other factors that, that go into accessing care. Um, so I think that that makes it a little bit easier to sort of empathize with somebody in that situation and understand that you're not just treating their illness. You need to think about the whole picture and how they're going to get where they're going and how they're going to access the care that they need. In your life experiences, you've seen multiple different physicians who then become role models. So when you were in Prescott and things were fine, you had some types of physicians. Your mother had other physicians. When you were in Tucson, perhaps you went to Student Health on the Indian uh, Health Services Reservation. When you were on the reservation, you probably saw Indian healers as well as allopathic physicians as well. Can you tell us from your own perspective how all of those different physicians maybe viewed the world differently and help you shape 
the vision of who you want to be. So little bits of each that you want to replicate and some that you want to avoid. Yeah, I think coming from such a small town, it was very interesting to um, grow up with our family doctor. He was the family doctor who saw you know, myself, my brother, my mom, my dad. Um, he was the first doctor I ever saw when I was like five hours old. And he was my doctor until I think I was about 18 when he retired. And so he at the when he retired, he sent me a packet of all of his handwritten notes on me, um, which was very interesting to see. I could actually document from the day I was sorry, from the day I was born to the day I was old enough to vote um, and see sort of their relationship with me. And, and so that amount of personal contact and, and knowing the staff so well is, you I mean, an immeasurable quality to have in your in your office to be able to know your patients from birth to to in some cases death and 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 sort of have that personal connection is is a bond that I don't think can easily be forged in a lot of places so that care for patients and 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 knowledge of their lives is something I definitely would want to emulate but I also you know working on the reservation I worked with some um, wonderful emergency room physicians but who would sort of be flown in and work three days at a time and then fly out and so it was interesting to see how they would sort of step away from their lives and sort of jump into this crazy, different, very rural, um, sort of on by the seat of your pants kind of vibe and, and how they felt that it helped them grow as physicians. So I knew this one um, doctor who came from Las Vegas every month or so to work there. And, and he was, I think, doing like an orthopedic residency. And then he would come out and help in the ER when he had time. And, and he was just... I think very moved by the the position that a lot, of the, a lot of the people on the reservation are in, but also it was such an opportunity to sort of see things you don't normally get to see in bigger cities because they have so many specialties and, and available care. So they use that as an opportunity not only to help others, but sort of help themselves and see how much they could learn from an opportunity that isn't really that available. So it was very, very cool. <laughs> that was a great perspective to mm-hmm. be able to have so many different role models from different uh, different entry points to different uh, final destinations. What is so special and beautiful about being a rural physician? What is the, the ideal way in which our uh, soul can be rejuvenated working in that environment and living with those communities in the rural environment to engage with families the way you described? Well, I think that uh, a truly rural community can offer a sense of um, I guess intimacy that it's, it's very hard to achieve in a larger setting so that it's not just you're able to help someone in a moment in their life you're able to help them shape their entire life and their entire picture of health so I think that if you really want to help people down to the core of you know what makes life worth living almost it's it's worth going somewhere where you get to know every aspect of their life because they might not have any other option for health they might not have any specialists or any other hospital so you can, you can really create a sense of community around your practice and not just sort of see people come and go, but see people come and stay and really help build what you see as your future. That's excellent perspective. And thank you so much for being with us and sharing your passions and your experience and your life story with us. We appreciate it so much. Yeah, thank you so much for having thank me. You. Johnny, we sure had a wonderful opportunity during this episode to sort of really dive into some of the issues we know that Arizona faces as far as healthcare shortages and um, rural health issues. And our guest sure had some really fascinating points today. Without a doubt, our listeners are going to take something away. You have the experience of working in these types of environments. And myself as a scientist, I don't 
live in this world, so it was all new to me, and I'm learning with our listeners. What I learned most is that uh, the definition of rural, where the extent of rural goes, and my personal takeaway is that this is one of those life lessons that you cannot learn from a book. You have to dive into it. You have to potentially enroll in one of Dr. Cartsonis's mm-hmm. uh, rural experiences so that you can feel what it's like to um, serve in these communities as well as connect with your patients. And I think fully fully immersing yourself in these communities is when you really decide, you know, does this resonate with me? Is it something that I'm passionate about? And lo and behold, for a lot of a lot of students and future providers, it might just be one of those things that fulfills them. Learning about all the different elements that are available through the College of Medicine for our students to grow their passion or at least their insight and their recognition of what's, what opportunities are in front of them is critical. Uh, I like the way that Dr. Kantz was talking about the comprehensive mm-hmm. nature of our cancer center. Uh, which serves the entire state. And that comprehensive doesn't just mean all different types of cancers. It means everything from uh, educating about cancer, educating about health, wellness, and then early detection, trusting physicians, pairing off native medicine with Western medicine in order to treat the whole body, which is a theme that keeps coming up in our podcasts. I was just going to say that it's really in line with the holistic treatment and how to get these treatments to even the farthest reaches within our state and provide that comprehensive holistic care. And I think that goes in line a lot with some of our other guests who talked, who focused on prevention and preventive medicine. It seems to be an ongoing theme, but how important that is. And Dr. Dixon in particular focused on, you know, we don't need to wait for some of these high risk populations that are vulnerable anyways and geographically isolated and we know might have high prevalences of certain illnesses to get sick when we can really focus on primary and primordial prevention. Yeah, that preventive medicine is critical, and uh, it goes about uh, in some of those rural populations to build the relationship between the patient and the provider. Mm -hmm. That relationship, which could have a stigma component to it or could have a distrust issue, that the more we engage our physicians in a community of service, that community will be able to uh, seek care early and often so Mm -hmm. that we can make Arizonans well. And I really enjoyed how each guest sort of emphasized how special and unique that relationship is. And although it comes with some challenges, it certainly comes with reward. And how about Katie Blevin sharing her story? And she certainly embodies that that passion and that drive to just really want to give back uh, to a community that really, really needs you to sort of practice at the top of your license in their community. Right, and Katie definitely embodies the idea of the mission of the Mm -hmm. College of Medicine Phoenix and the University of Arizona, which is to deliver care. And today, or very shortly, Katie will be delivering care as a student and then potentially as a resident and then potentially as a physician, which is exactly what we need. We need to deliver health care through physicians and other health care providers into all these diverse corners of Arizona. Right. A lofty but certainly attainable goal. I wish we could just talk about this forever. Unquestionably, but unfortunately our time is up. Lift shits out like a well-functioning GI system. Bright out like a good night's sleep. The Reimagined Medicine Podcast is brought to you by the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Phoenix. Join us again as we highlight aspects of clinical care, education, and research in an ongoing endeavor to reimagine medicine. Our podcast team is Dr. Katie Bright, Dr. Johnny Lifshitz, Beth Smith, and the media production team at the UA College of Medicine, Phoenix. 
Our theme song, Dungeon of Return Days, was written and recorded by Midair Machine. The song is accessible on freemusicarchive.org and used under the CC BYSA 4.0 license. <laughs>